Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. It's often said that truth is stranger than fiction. At first glance, it may seem as though this bizarre case of a murderous teenager in 1987 was just another burglary gone wrong. Join us as we reveal how the actions taken by this killer prior to the murder is what made this case feel more like a horror movie than real life. story begins in the summer of 1986 in Pepperell, Massachusetts, which is about 30 minutes outside of Boston. Brian Andrews and his two teenage daughters, Annie and Jessica, were struggling to adjust to their new reality after the death of the girl's mother after a long battle with cancer. Brian worked a lot trying to provide for his family as a now single father. He especially worked late nights as a bus driver often leaving the girls home alone, but they were responsible kids and he didn't really need to worry about them getting into trouble. One day, Annie answered the phone and was surprised by a boy she didn't know on the other end. He told her his name was Danny and he was given her phone number by a kid at her school because he had seen her around and thought she was really pretty. He told her he went to a different school and boasted that he was a good-looking, athletic, blonde football star. Annie started a regular flirtation with Danny, talking on the phone nearly every day. When Danny asked Annie to go on an ice cream date with him, she didn't even need to think about it. Of course she wanted to go. That's a weird way to approach someone, even as a kid. And the fact that he didn't even give her the name of this so-called closest friend was so weird. Right? If some stranger calls you and says someone you know gave them your number, at least check with that person and make sure they're on the level. (laughs) So she actually went, I'm assuming. Was he everything he said he was? When 16-year-old Danny showed up at her door for their date, she was shocked. He didn't look anything like he had described to her. He was scrawny, unkept, with greasy brown hair. Annie didn't want to be rude, so she went on the date anyway. But she was extremely uncomfortable, realizing that she didn't actually know this boy she had been talking to all this time. While on the date, Danny seemed oddly interested in how her mother had died. He peppered her with painful and inappropriate questions about her mom's cancer until she couldn't take it anymore and made an excuse to go home early. What the hell? What happened to questions like, what's your favorite color and who's your favorite singer? (laughs) She never should have gone on a date with a stranger in the first place. I don't care if it hurts someone's feelings. Being rude is better than putting yourself in danger. And yeah, the questions about how her mom died is super creepy. He's clearly not who he described he was. And most people on dates may ask about parents. But as soon as someone says that one has passed away, the other person just says, I'm sorry for your loss. And you move on. Right. Annie never wanted to see or talk to Danny again. She tried to put it behind her, but his prying questions about her mom stuck with her. Annie and Jessica both desperately wanted to talk to their mom again. They missed her so much. One evening, the sisters decided to try to contact their mom. In the basement, they set up candles and attempted to perform a seance. They performed it purely as naive teenagers, not really expecting anything to come of it. 
That is so dangerous. If you don't have experience or know what you're doing, you can let anything into your home. We see it in the movies all the time, but you are literally opening up a door to spirits and the chances that it's your loved one is slim to none. I completely agree. It's not a game and not something to mess around with lightly. Even for adults, let alone children. It may be a scary conversation, but I think it's worth having with your kids. If little Ashley pulls out a Ouija board, do not participate and get the hell out of there. That same night, after the seance, odd things started happening in the house. While Annie and Jessica were in bed, they heard rhythmic knocking against their bedroom walls. Amazingly, it seemed like the seance had been a success. In the dead of the night, the two girls spoke to the unseen entity as if it was their mom. They asked the ghost questions and received consistent knocks in response. They were overjoyed, believing they had finally had their mom back, at least in some small way. This continued for several evenings until it became so regular that it wasn't allowing the girls to get any sleep. The activity started to ramp up all over the house. Objects would disappear or be moved to places they didn't belong. Lights would flicker on and off and the doorbell would ring when no one was there. The girls got so freaked out that they started to think maybe it hadn't been their mother at all and they had accidentally invited something evil into their home. Well, your mother wouldn't be out to psychologically torture you and prevent you from sleeping, so I would have to agree with them. Right? I get that they wanted desperately to talk to their mom again, but that's not her. Did their dad notice, or was this some type of spirit that only communicated with the girls? No one else experienced these odd occurrences, and their dad, Brian, thought the girls were moving the furniture and taking things as a way to get attention. They tried to tell him that they had unknowingly let an evil ghost into the house, but Brian refused to believe such nonsense. Instead, he told himself they were struggling with the death of their mother and it would all eventually pass. This all continued for months. One evening in January 1987, the knocking began again while Annie and Jessica were alone in the house watching a movie together. By this point, the constant tapping had become so frequent that it was driving the girls insane. This particular evening, however, it seemed that the noises weren't coming from the walls this time, but from the basement. If no one would believe them, they would face it themselves. They armed themselves with kitchen knives and the two girls warily made their way towards the basement. As they crept down the stairs, they were faced with an ominous sight. Written in what looked like blood on the basement wall was the message, I'm in your room, come and find me. Okay, never go to the basement if you hear something coming from there. It's survival skills 101 conjurers. <laughs> uh, I probably would have gone too. I'm too curious for my own good, man. Oh my gosh, I, I worry for you. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me these girls didn't actually go to the room to verify the blood written message. No, that's where they drew the line. The girls fled the house without hesitation and ran to a neighbor's house. They waited for their dad to get home from work and told him what they discovered. Brian was furious, still believing that this was his daughters who were responsible for the vandalism in his basement walls. He ordered Annie and Jessica to go to counseling to help them cope with the loss of their mother and hopefully stop all of these shenanigans. All of the activity stopped for a few weeks 
and the girls started to breathe easier, thinking maybe it was finally over. Until one night when it all kicked up again. This time, the knocking came from behind Annie's bedroom wall. When the two girls entered the room, they were again greeted with a message written in what looked like blood on the wall that said, I'm back. Find me if you can. How about we don't play hide-and-go-seek with something that is clearly evil and from the sounds of it, not human? Uh, yeah, that's so creepy. If I was them, I wouldn't even want to be in the house at all. What did they do? So this incident played out the same as before, with Brian placing the blame solely on Annie and Jessica. The girls called him from a neighbor's house to come home, but this time the neighbor was on their side and convinced Brian to at least check the house out first. Angry, he marched into his home to prove there was no one else there. However, when Brian entered the house, he noticed that there had been further disarray than what his neighbor and the girls had previously claimed. It then started to sink in that someone had to have been in the house when Brian and the girls and the neighbor were all next door. All of the TVs in the house were blaring, but he could hear sounds coming from Annie's room. He crept into the room and was shocked by the message, Marry Me, written in huge, dripping, blood-red letters on the wall. Movement on the other side of the room caught his eye and he was greeted with an even more unnatural sight. A teenage boy stood dressed in his dead wife's clothing. He was wearing her makeup, one of her dresses, and a blonde wig. That's insanely eerie. I always wondered how I would react seeing a spirit in full form. But I feel like my heart would literally stop. Seeing a full apparition is like a secret dream of mine. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be totally freaked out, especially considering the torment of the kids that the dad was just realizing was actually real. I wasn't expecting that. So it's a ghost boy. Well, then Brian noticed the most chilling part. In one of the boy's hands was a hatchet. A struggle ensued, but Brian lost sight of the boy for only a minute. He was dumbfounded how the boy was able to seemingly disappear without a trace. Brian started to doubt his own skepticism. Was this a ghost after all? I mean, that would be my first thought as well. He had to be thinking he was going crazy, or at least feeling bad for not believing his daughters. So what was his next move? Did he keep chasing this boy, or did he call the police? Oh, he called the police. When the police arrived to investigate it, it all became clear. After discovering that each message had been written in ketchup, the police thoroughly searched the house for clues of how the boy may have been able to access the house in the first place. One officer found a hidden crawl space behind a cupboard which was built into the wall of Annie's bedroom. When the officer opened the hatch, he found Danny LaPlante curled up inside. The officers removed Danny from the crawl space and placed him under arrest. Oh, hell to the no. (laughs) So he was living within this family's walls the whole time? Uh, Yeah. Can you believe that? I hate to believe this happens in real life. That is everyone's worst nightmare. I've watched enough horror films that when me and my family are out for the day, I check every single room, closet, bathroom as soon as I get home. I'll be damned (laughs) if someone pops out of my closet in the dead of night. This is giving me icebox murder vibes from that one theory. (laughs) Yes, it could have been anyone in that room, man. (laughs) Okay, so once Danny had been removed from the scene, officers conducted a thorough search of the rest of the house. 
In the basement, they found a large part of the wall behind the dryer cut out. Inside was bedding and food wrappers. To their horror, they discovered that Danny had been living inside of the walls of the home for months. The passageway, which they discovered Danny in, had been tunneled around to other areas of the house, where he had cut out peepholes all over the house so that Danny could watch Annie and the others no matter which room she was in. This gives me chills. He was so committed, and if those girls would have stayed there or went back instead of their dad, it's likely that he was planning to murder them that day. It really seems like that was the plan. I mean, he wrote marry me on the wall, so maybe he was planning to kill them if Annie rejected him again. So he took advantage of these girls losing their mother for his own sick entertainment? Clearly. Danny had been pretending to be the ghost of Annie and Jessica's mother in order to torment them. It's believed that Danny was planning on revealing himself to the girls that night dressed as their dead mother, likely in an effort to torment them further. And like we said, the fact that he was wielding a hatchet at the time suggests that Annie and Jessica barely made a lucky escape with their lives that night. The family decided to move to New Hampshire to get away from the traumatizing memories now plaguing their once happy home. And who could blame them? Sham will tell us more after this short break. Daniel LaPlante was born in 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts. Danny suffered a traumatic childhood, as I'm sure you could imagine. He suffered sexual and psychological abuse at the hands of multiple adults in his life, the worst of which was his father, who dealt out a majority of his son's punishments, allegedly torturing him physically, emotionally, and sexually on a regular basis. Danny's troubled upbringing affected every aspect of his young life. He struggled with school, both academically and socially. He had very few friends throughout his school days, with most of his classmates at North Middlesex High School referring to him as creepy or weird. In his early teenage years, Danny was referred by school officials to a psychiatrist due to his abnormal behavior and general reluctance towards hygiene and self-improvement. Rough start to life, but it sounds like the school was trying to get him some help at least. I mean, at least they notice his behavior. It's hard to focus on one kid with a classroom of 40. So many slip through the cracks. Did seeing the psychiatrist help at all? This psychiatrist could have been a turning point in young Danny's life, if not for the tragic events that occurred instead. Danny's relationship with a psychiatrist eventually took a dark turn when the psychiatrist made a sexual advance towards him. For the next year, the psychiatrist sexually abused Danny during every one of their sessions. Like his father before him, this was a man who had been trusted to care for Danny, but instead added another layer of grief to his already painful existence. That is horrible. The abuse of power that psychiatrists used against a child is disgusting. Right. He knew he had been sexually abused and used that to his advantage. Instead of helping him, he just added a new layer of trauma. I'm starting to see how he got so messed up in the head. In his early teens, Danny established himself as a small-time thief. He spent his evenings breaking into people's homes in the Townsend area and stealing their valuables. As his burglary skills increased, so did his desire for tormenting his victims. By age 15, he was breaking into people's homes and not only taking their possessions, but also leaving random items behind. He started moving things around people's homes in such a way that it was clear someone had been there, but not so much that it was immediately obvious. Eventually, he was invading people's homes purely for the joy of playing mind games with the owners. 
This all, of course, escalated to his constant torment of the Andrew sisters, living in their walls for nearly six months. Uh, it still gives me the chills to think of his hiding in their walls, watching them for so long. By the time he made it to the Andrew sisters' homes, he was a professional with all of this stuff. <laughs> but at that point, he's in juvie, right? So what happened with that? After his arrest at the Andrews house, Danny was evaluated at Bridgewater Mental Hospital and then was sent to a juvenile facility. In October of 1987, the court determined that he should be charged as an adult, which made him eligible for bail. His mom put up his bond and he was released back into the community. This turned out to be the worst mistake they could have made. Almost immediately following his release, Danny returned to his life of burglary. During one of his robberies in November, Danny stole two handguns from a neighbor's house. Danny was living with his mom and stepdad when on December 1st of 1987, he made his way through the woods behind his house. About a mile through the woods was the house of his next door neighbors, the Gustafsons. This was an average middle-class family. Andrew Gustafson was a successful real estate lawyer, and his wife Priscilla, who was 33 years old, was a nursery school teacher. They had two kids, Abigail, who was nearly eight years old, and William, who was five. Priscilla was also pregnant with their third child. Oh no, I'm scared for where this is going. I'm sorry, how does deciding this crime was so bad he should be charged as an adult instead of as a child mean he's eligible for more freedom? I don't get it. Right. You would think him being charged as an adult also means that they see him as more danger to society. The system clearly needs some work. I bet that family was just living their daily lives, never expecting a creep like Danny to waltz in. Right. That December day, Andrew called his wife excited about a big real estate deal that he had just closed. He wanted to tell her to get a sitter because they needed to celebrate with a night out. When no one answered, Andrew drove home to his rustic house deep in the isolated knoll in the woods. He saw Priscilla's car in the driveway, but the house was eerily dark. He called out to her, but as he entered the house, it was silent. He found Priscilla in their bedroom. His very pregnant wife was face down on their bed. The pillows around her were soaked in blood. He doesn't remember everything that happened after that. He said the trauma was so shocking and unbelievable that he just screamed and sobbed. He remembers going to the kitchen to call the police and his parents. He was too afraid to look for the children because he was terrified that he'd find them dead too. Oh my god. He must have been in total shock. I can't imagine not looking for the children myself, but I get it. I would have immediately ran to my children's room. I don't think I would ever be prepared for that gruesome scene. But I would have the mindset of, I need to do everything I can to save my child if there's still a chance, you know? I completely agree. Please tell me the kids were okay. When the police arrived, Andrew sat in one of their cruisers while they searched the house. An officer came out and told him that his daughter and son were dead. They discovered the bodies of Andrew's two children in different bathtubs. Five-year-old William had been drowned in the upstairs bathroom, while eight-year-old Abigail had endured a similar fate in the downstairs bathroom. Priscilla had been raped and shot multiple times in the head at a point-blank range. It looked like the killer had tried to muffle the sound of the shots by shooting her through the pillows. He's probably lucky he didn't have to see his babies like that. This is a vicious scene. This killer was sadistic. They could have left those little kids alone. You can always leave the children alone. 
They literally never do anything, like nothing to be the focus of a crime. A person who hurts children is the worst type of scum on this earth. So did they know who did this or why? All evidence suggested that Priscilla and the kids had walked in while their place was being robbed and he killed them. However, the police noticed similarities to the local case from almost a year ago at the Andrews residence. For example, the killer had written a taunting message on the bedroom wall in the victim's blood, and the lettering looked exactly like the catch-up messages left for Annie. The police immediately suspected Danny and showed up at his house unannounced. His mom delayed the cop's entry, thinking he had missed a meeting with his lawyer or something, giving Danny enough time to bolt out the back door and disappear. Of course. That's a big escalation from his last stunt, though. Oh, yeah. And you know, his mother is beginning to seem very questionable to me, possibly very naive to who her child has become. Maybe she turned the other cheek because she failed him so many times in the past as a child. Or maybe she didn't care enough to pay attention to him to even see what was happening to or by him. That that could be, yes. <laughs> Given that Danny's actions progressed rapidly from burglary to full-scale murder once he was in possession of a weapon, suggests that he didn't feel confident enough or have the physical strength to subdue his victims by hand. In addition, restraints were found in the house with the victims. This prompts the theory that Danny had held his victims at gunpoint while he restrained them. He likely killed Priscilla first to remove the biggest threat, then drowned the children one by one. Danny was considered to be armed and incredibly dangerous. Given Danny's history, there was no telling what lengths he might go to avoid being arrested. The Andrews family was finishing up packing for their move when police called to let them know that Danny was on the run. They had serious concerns that he might return to their house to finish what he had started. Oh, wow. They must have been terrified that he was coming back for them. I mean, that or he's going to find a new family to torment. Right. I'm sure Danny isn't the type to stop his twisted fun for any reason. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a few towns over, Danny broke into a woman's home and kidnapped her in her own car. The woman escaped, but Danny was spotted by someone who had seen a photograph of him on the news. For two days, police received tons of tips, but Danny was always one step ahead. The community was on edge, and everyone was on the lookout for Danny. When a witness reported a sighting of Danny at a lumberyard, police wasted no time. Police swarmed in with helicopters and all. They used a ruse to lure him out by pulling back the helicopters and loudly telling all the officers to pull back, making Danny feel safe. Danny emerged, and they arrested him on the spot. He laughed hysterically while they cuffed him, which unnerved even the most seasoned police officers present. When he was inspected, a hair belonging to Abigail was discovered on his sock, proving Danny's involvement in the murders of the Gustafson family. Laughing while he's being arrested? This kid is a true psychopath. Clearly, and I can see why the town was on edge at that point. If my cat had made a noise while I was sleeping, I'd be on high alert. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully the justice system learned their lesson about this kid and didn't let him out again to hurt more families. Danny LaPlante was 17 when he broke into a home in Townsend, shot and killed a mother, and then drowned her two children. He was sentenced to serve three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Many years later, the state Supreme Judicial Court ruled that juveniles cannot be sentenced to life in prison without parole. The court wrote that scientific research shows that lifelong imprisonment for youths is cruel and unusual because their brains are not fully developed. 
Danny's attorneys argue that his sentence conflicts with court rulings in the last several years that say juveniles convicted of murder should be given a meaningful opportunity to re-engage with society. The law was retroactive, which means that when the time comes, even though at the time a judge could order consecutive prison terms, Danny will be eligible for parole at some point. I guess I understand that. It's hard to imagine a kid doing something as brutal as what Danny did, though. And with no remorse. This should be on a case-by-case basis, depending on just how vicious and heartless the crime was. I agree. At the very least, he should be in a maximum security mental hospital. Did he ever show any regret for all the things he did? Since Danny's incarceration, he has shown little remorse for his actions. While clearly suffering from multiple personality disorders, he was officially diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder along with tremendous lack of empathy in 2012. Danny continues to show that he is a broken man beyond repair. From 1988 to 2014, Danny attempted to sue the courts multiple times for violations of his rights. In one case, he claimed that the prison system violated his religious rights as he was allegedly a practicing Satanist and required sufficient materials in order to carry out certain Satanic rites. His claims were denied. Uh, okay. What was he even asking for? I swear, these kids and their Satanism. It's not a trend, you guys. And real Satanists don't brutally murder people. I can literally hear him telling the CEO that he needs a few dead rabbits, candles, a drop of human blood, and a fire to dance around. Meanwhile, all the practicing Christians in jail just want a Bible and Sunday service. (laughs) (laughs) He was just looking for an excuse to throw a tantrum. Oh, yeah. In 2017, a resentencing hearing was held where he asked for a reduction in his sentence to the 30 years already served. There was a new law allowing juveniles convicted of murder with extreme cruelty and atrocity to ask for parole after they've been behind bars for a minimum of 30 years. The judge, however, gave Danny the maximum penalty of 45 years after forensic psychiatrists evaluated him and found that he was not remorseful for his crimes at all. That means that Danny will be eligible for parole in 2032 at the age of 62. During his plea to the judge at the resentencing, he said, and I quote, I do not have the words to fully express my profound sorrow, but I am truly sorry for the harm I have caused. From the very essence of who I am, from the depths of my soul, I am sorry, end quote. Are these the words of a man who truly regrets his actions? Or are these the words of a manipulative, deluded monster willing to say anything to get his freedom? I don't buy it. That could easily have been rehearsed to gain sympathy. All these years of feeling no remorse at all and suddenly he figures it out? Yeah, right. Seems like he was using one of his many personalities to try and fool the judge. So what did Priscilla's husband think about all of that? Danny's final victim left behind, Andrew Gustafson, passed away in 2014, so he wasn't around to hear his family's killer profess his regret in court. However, upon his deathbed, Andrew allegedly said, don't ever let him out. He should rot in prison. After the murders, Andrew moved in with his parents. He rented an apartment in Townsend, but within a few months moved back to his old house. He said he needed to emotionally reclaim it. The house became a source of strength for him, filled with the memories of his family. The love that occurred there was much stronger than the death there. 
He told reporters that the first months were difficult, although dinner invitations from thoughtful friends helped. He joined a support group for survivors of homicide victims, which really helped him feel less alone. Andrew described the journey as a roller coaster with no highs, just different depths of low. It was a struggle to just get through each day, he explained, that at first you sob all the time. Then you set goals, like today I'm going to go shopping. You don't want to go out and deal with people, but when you do, you feel better because you did it. Andrew said the hardest part was losing his children. He said he had dreams about his wife and each child. Each of them came to him in individual dreams and told him that they were all right. That's heartbreaking, but it's really good to hear that he found a way to make it through something most people deem unimaginable. He even eventually remarried to a widow who truly understood his pain. He lost everything, but didn't spend the rest of his life alone. This entire story is full of horror and loss thanks to one boy with untreated mental health issues. Danny LaPlante was clearly a very disturbed young man who enjoyed torturing people both psychologically and physically. The flaws in our justice system allowed a dangerous man back into the community where he wasted no time in causing as much pain as possible to whoever happened to be nearby. Locking people up and throwing away the key may not be the answer, but expecting people with mental illness to function properly in society without help and supervision is unrealistic. Annie, Jessica, Priscilla, Abigail, and William all deserve to be protected from this psychopath. NAMI offers support and education programs for families and individuals living with mental health conditions. NAMI recognizes that the key concepts of recovery, resiliency, and support are essential to improving the wellness and quality of life of all persons affected by mental illness. Find your local NAMI location at nami.org findsupport or call their helpline at 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at crimeandconjurepodcast for the question of the week. Steph, what's our conjure tip of the week? Today we want to talk about the stone Jasper. Jasper is known as the supreme nurturer. It sustains and supports through times of stress and brings tranquility and wholeness. This stone also provides protection and absorbs negative energy. This stone is excellent when working through past trauma and can help you find the courage to be completely honest with yourself and it helps to rectify unjust situations. So if you're going through something that you know you'll never get closure for, this stone would be a really good one to carry with you. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.